with the election amping up with Super Tuesday tomorrow, Pastor, is it possible that we need to get underneath the version of Christianity that we are living, especially those of us in the South? Or is it possible that it is true that America changes religions? Hello, this is Todd Littleton with ToddLittleton.net, home of Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. You can find us at ToddLittleton.net. You can find us at ThePastorTheologian.com or ThePastorTheologian.net. I want to tell you that uh, I'm offering a reprise of an interview with my friend Alan Cross. We're going to talk about his book, When Heaven and Earth Collide. And we're going to follow an article that he wrote that gives us an entree into talking about his book. There are a number of things that will be important to pay attention to, especially if you're interested in the intersection of pastoring, pastoral ministry, and theology, no matter if you're doing pastoral work professionally or not. So I encourage you to stay tuned. When it's over, I'm going to have a word about a new sponsor or two that we have. So stay tuned and listen for that. And as always, uh, take the occasion and share the podcast. You can share us uh, on Twitter, on Facebook, and you can subscribe in iTunes and on Stitcher. So now here's the uh, interview with Alan, and thanks for listening. Alan, glad to have you on the podcast. I'm pretty excited. We've, we've you know been friends for some time. Uh, most of those years spent, you know, online text message phone calls just because we live hours away from each other. But it would be fun if we lived kind of more near one another hanging out. But uh, what I'd like to do is is, is uh, I'd like to, you to tell us a little bit about yourself. And you can go back as far uh, as you care to. You could be as current as you want to or you could do both. But uh, just we, we'd like to know a little bit about you beyond the fact that you pastor in Montgomery, Alabama. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, Todd. Uh, good to be with you today. And, and yeah, that's where I guess I start. I'm a Southern Baptist pastor in Montgomery, Alabama, and I've been here for 15 years, uh, married four children that are growing older way too fast. I uh, wish they could slow down, but uh, they're a real joy. And uh, I went to seminary at Golden Gate Baptist out in the San Francisco Bay Area, which was really, really good for me. It kind of set some things in my mind and helped me to understand uh, a, a vast, multi-ethnic, multicultural world that's moving at the speed of thought um, as fast as it can. And, and so that was a great place for me to live and, and to do theological reflection and grow and study and be involved in ministry. And so that kind of helped me maybe set the stage for a lot of things that, that came later when I came to Montgomery. I came to Montgomery in uh, 2000, and uh, I'm from the South. I was born in New Orleans. My family's all from New Orleans and South Mississippi for generations and generations and grew up uh, in um, a small town in South Mississippi just across the border. So I kind of had that mix of, of, of urban and rural um, uh, with my family and, and everything. And I went to college at Mississippi State University, and it was there that I really felt a, a call to ministry and then went to Golden Gate for seminary and then came to Montgomery uh, where I was associate pastor of a church. And when I came to Montgomery, and I think what's probably relevant for this conversation, I was really trained as a missionary when I was in seminary. How do you contextualize? How do you understand the world you live in? How do you relate the gospel to that world wherever you are? It doesn't matter if you're in the Bible Belt and Oklahoma or Alabama or if you're in, you know, sub-Saharan Africa or India or China. You always have to figure out where people are uh, as as you try to relate the gospel to them. And when I came to Montgomery, uh 
you know, birthplace of the, of the Civil War, birthplace of the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, I really wanted to understand the history of, of the city. So I, I started studying and, and researching and learning and uh, really began to, to, to really delve into the issues of race and religion and economics and all, and all of those things in American history, as well as in the South, and especially as related to religion. And Southern Baptist, as I'm a Southern Baptist pastor, so I've spent the past 15 years studying that issue pretty intently and how the gospel of Jesus relates to all of that and, and disarms it. Uh, so that's, I guess, a little bit about me. No, that, that's excellent. And and really, you kind of went to a place I wanted to go so that we can make good use, not of your time, but also the listeners. And so um, you, you went to a, a place that, that had lots of questions. In fact, in this article that I kind of want to use to provide our talking points, um, you said you, you, you went to this area and it was the birthplace of the Confederacy, of the Civil Rights Movement, 100 years apart. And so you immerse yourself in history. And you had lots of questions that uh, came up. So if you would, make the connection between what you learned in your years at seminary, uh, San Francisco, Golden Gate, and how that fueled or, or how that gave you the framework to look at those questions, not just you know, maybe drive around and make some particular observation, but drove you to say, okay, so what's behind this? So help us think theologically about that. What, what did you get at, at Golden Gate that, that tended to fuel uh, the way you addressed moving to uh, Montgomery and those questions that you had? Right. Well, you know, um, in my systematic theology classes, which are really helpful, I had a professor named Dr. Stanley Nelson, and he taught us uh, a theology um, the whole story of the Bible. We didn't do systematic theology just in bits and pieces and, and separated doctrines. He looked at how theology developed. And so we started with the time of Christ and went through the history of the church. We hit every single uh, doctrine that you would hit, but we looked at them as they became a controversy in uh, at different epics and different points of time with the patristic fathers all the way through the ages of the church, through, uh, through the Reformation up to present day. And so doing that, seeing that nothing develops in a vacuum, all theological thought is influenced in some type of way by what's going on in culture, by, by discussions people are having. I mean, we have the Bible and we work from Scripture and we believe that Scripture is true and, and uh, you know, it's our standard. But at the same time, we're trying to apply it in a set place and time. And so as we do that, questions come up, heresies develop, uh, people have different ideas, and those things have to be countered and discussed and worked through and argued. And so seeing how theology developed over 2,000 years and, and how what we know as orthodoxy uh, you know, came to be, especially during the time period of from the resurrection of Christ to maybe 400 A.D., you know, that time period right there, there were so many things that developed in, in it really helped me to realize that we don't just get our theology handed down in stone tablets from mountain on high. It's people working through things, and lots of times there's error, and there's error that exists for maybe a couple hundred years until someone steps up and says, this is wrong. And so that's how I learned theology. That's how I studied it. And so when I came to Montgomery, I was already attuned to that possibility that just because people claim to use Scripture, it doesn't mean that they're right, and they can be very, very wrong. And um, and so that was kind of my context as I began to study. And, I, and so I started with a question. Well, the, the question developed, how, how could a place full of so many churches, what we know as the Bible Belt, how could it have been so wrong and an issue so fundamental to how we treat other people? And I really didn't know the answer. You know, I didn't know the answer to that, even though I was born and raised in the South and, you know, I'm a son of Confederate 
soldiers, you know, um, in my ancestry and uh, things like that. But I really didn't understand it because when I asked the question uh, to my elders, why were white people and white Christians so racist over time, the answer I would always get would be, well, that's just the way things were. And I was just supposed to accept that and move on. But then I found as I kept studying that, no, things weren't always that way, that this whole idea of white supremacy being enforced through slavery and then segregation and then dragging the church along with it developed over time and it developed for certain reasons. And so once I began to see that, then I began to kind of explore the heresy angle as well. Well, you know, um, in in that description, um, just to kind of give a, a little foreshadowing here, uh, this this drew you in so much that you spent uh, a good bit of time that resulted in uh, the book uh, When Heaven and Earth Collide. Um so, so tell us a, a, a little bit about well, why write a book, Alan? Why, why write a book on the subject? Well, it started with a question. Uh, as I was doing my research, I read a story about the Freedom Riders when they came to Montgomery. Now, I mean, I'm a, I have a history background. I'm a high school history teacher by trade before I went into the ministry. That was my background. Love history. I've read it my whole life. And, uh, and I knew quite a bit about civil rights history. That was an area that I was interested in, but I had never really heard this particular story. So when the Freedom Riders come to Montgomery in May of 1961, after, after coming through Alabama and Birmingham, their, their point was to desegregate the interstate busing system by practice. It had already been desegregated by law, but no one had tested it. And so they saw it to uh, black and white young people, college students riding together. They end up uh, coming in Alabama. Their bus is bombed in Anniston, Alabama. They're beaten in Birmingham. And then they come to Montgomery, and there's a mob waiting for them there. Uh, the city and the state allow it to happen. They beat the Freedom Riders. But then the next day, the Freedom Riders go uh, to a church, this First Baptist Church on Ripley, on Ripley Street, the African-American First Baptist Church. And 1,500 people gather inside that church. To as a rally to support them as a mass meeting to support the Freedom Riders before they went on to Jackson, Mississippi. Their goal was to end up in New Orleans and to have ridden through the whole South. 1,500 people inside the church, the Freedom Riders inside the church, a mob of 3,000 people actually surrounds the church. And their goal was to intimidate the Freedom Riders, to keep them from going forward, to say that, you know, the South is not going to bow the knee. And then the mob really got out of hand. They turned a car over upside down in the street, set it on fire. They they made Molotov cocktails and threw them on the roof of the, of the church building, apparently to set it on fire. Uh, they were throwing rocks and bottles uh, through the windows. This was a night of violence. and It was a church under siege. Uh, in, in, in a situation that I've never found a parallel to in American history, where 1,500 worshipers inside a church, I mean, they were singing Love Lifted Me and praying to God, and there were sermons, and they were crying out to God for mercy, and a mob of 3,000 people surrounding it in Montgomery, Alabama, a city in the south, uh, in the Bible Belt. And so learning that story, I went to the church, and I met the pastor, and, and uh, you know, walked around the building and just prayed and thought. And, and this question just really began to burn in me. Why did this happen? How could this have happened in a place that claimed to be godly, in a place that claimed to have churches? And there are here in Montgomery churches on every corner. How could something like this have happened without the other Christians in the city, white Christians in the city, stepping up and saying, stop, enough? And so that set me on uh, this journey to figure out how and why, not just the what. I mean, we know the what, the what's in history, but we don't do a good job of figuring out the high and the what, of the how and the why, especially when it relates to theology and, and our churches. Well, so, so uh, given us that, that great glimpse into kind of what drove you, what motivated you, uh, that springs us forward to this article you wrote. 
In particular, you had a couple of really um, – well, you, you could actually read your um, deep emotive response uh, that had to be birthed in uh, – you know, hearing, reading that story, investigating that story, the consequences that, you know, eventually grew into maybe an answer that you found and how you put that together and some, uh, some of the observations you made. Um, and, and the whole intersection was a similar event. It wasn't 1,500 people uh, in, a, in a church. It, it, was nine, it, it was a small group where nine were killed. You, you refer to them as the Charleston Nine. And and what really is is compelling, uh, as I read that piece, uh, and for those of you listening, we'll put a link to it. Uh, it garnered 170 plus comments on a Southern Baptist uh, website that kind of aggregates uh, a variety of uh, posts or, or pieces written by uh, Southern Baptists. And um, and and what you what you described. Uh, in that article was uh, this deep sense of uh, what happened when the families got together two days later, not 48 hours really, later, and uh, in that closed circuit uh, bond bond hearing room, uh, they uh, pledged their forgiveness to uh, uh, Dylan Roof. And and here's your line. Um, Your line was um, it, it was a beauty and a purity that we could not understand. We could not look at it too long. Now, people may read past that, Alan, but, but I, because I know you, I, 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 I grasp the sense at which there was just an, in, this internal uh, trigger, this connection that tied the events that you just described in Montgomery those years ago where those 1,500 people were in that church that was firebombed and then and then found the same thing. And while you weren't there in 1,500 to hear kind of the particular aftermath, was there any sort of parallel? In this moment, all these years later, where we wouldn't expect this sort of thing to occur, we glimpse forgiveness, and it, it was pretty moving. Is, is that an accurate uh, description of kind of what you were communicating right there? Right, yeah. It, it, um, you know, I've, I've been to events in Montgomery um, with the 49th and 50th anniversary of the Freedom Riders, and the Freedom Riders came back, and many of them were Christian. And I remember being at that church in the sanctuary, and one of the Freedom Riders who was there it just explained how he forgave his, uh, those who, who beat him and the mob, and he was weeping. 49 years later. And so that has been a legacy of, of these activists and of, and, and of those who are motivated by Christianity, not just by wanting uh, things to be better. They did, but they also were motivated by, by Christ. And so they were deep faith, uh, very strong Christians, and they expressed forgiveness to their attackers years ago. So last Friday or I guess a, a little over a week ago now when I was sitting at my kitchen table and and I saw the video of these families forgiving, it tapped into that strength and that story, not just of the Freedom Riders, but of believers throughout the centuries who have been persecuted and have been attacked. And instead of fighting back and, you know, angry and, and all of these things, they expressed forgiveness because Christ forgave them. And that's exactly what they were doing. So I'm sitting at my kitchen table and just begin sobbing. Uh, I, and I'm not trying to be dramatic, but it just hit me, in, you know, in a very deep way. 
say that this is this is Christianity. This is the faith that that Christ has has, has brought us to, and, I, and and it was just being expressed in a way that I, that we're not used to seeing at all. And even to the point that as people were interviewing, as 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 news people and commentators were interviewing people about it, they were asking uh, uh, Jake Tapper. I know was was doing an, an, an interview on CNN, and he asked the panel. He said, "Is this Christianity? Is this teaching in Christianity? Or is this is this the black church?" You know, what is this? He didn't even know how to explain it. And it just hit me very, very strong that we, 2,000 years after Christ dying for our sins on the cross, we have people in America, a country that we claim to be you know, heavily influenced by, by Scripture and by Christianity, asking what is this when they actually see the real thing. And so that kind of puts everything in the context, and it, it really strikes me that we have not been showing the real thing, and these people had a chance to do that, and they did it. And, uh, you know, they're heroes to me. Well, uh, oh, no doubt, and and should be to all of us who uh, take up the name uh, of Jesus and call Him Lord. I, I'm 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 pretty interested to try to make a, a connection to something you said uh, a bit ago, and that is one thing that you were uh, troubled by when you began doing your research was the question of how could this happen. And how is it that it seemed like the dominant culture uh, kept things as they were? And why was there no motivation or no resource for them to say, well, this shouldn't happen? And, and so if we, if we bring that idea of uh, things as they are, or as some refer to it, the as-is structures of the way that you know, our institutions and systems develop, and here we've got these, um, these families expressing forgiveness for this horror that they've experienced. And, and now you've got commentators asking, the, the, is this question, is it fair to say, in your opinion, that, that what they do in forgiving is they really try to, to then uh, give a challenge not as bombastically as maybe um, others do about other issues in in uh, those culture warring battles of uh, Christianity and, and culture, but but they actually give us a glimpse of what should be the as is for Christians. Right. Right. Yeah, and you know. I'm convinced. I mean, I don't know this for sure, but I think that they got together and they made a decision to do this. I don't think it was just a, an emotive response. Uh, one of the people forgiving said, I'm not quite where the rest of them are being able to do this, but then she still forgave anyway. Um, but she expressed her, her anger. Uh, this wasn't just emotion. We choose to forgive because it makes us feel better. This was a choice that they made, and they knew what it meant. Um to say to the killer of their family members, we forgive you, not even 48 hours later. And so it was, it was, it was done as an act of will. It was done as an act of the mind and also the heart as well. And they, and they, and they clung to Christ as, as they did it. Uh, the American church should exegete what happened there and really try to figure out how it applies to the rest of our lives because it was such a powerful story. So that is the way that things should be. Things weren't that way. And as I studied and as I investigated, I really didn't know why. I mean, I know people, you know, we live for ourselves and we get deceived, but this mass delusion of millions of Christians in America to be so wrong, first on the issue of slavery, but then also on the issue of race and a 
and of you know segregation and division in our churches and all of these things. How did this happen? And and as I studied, you know, for a long time I blamed Christians because we, you know why are Christians acting this way? That type of thing. We you know we should know better. But as I went further back into history, I really got to the root of it where it started. And it started in the tobacco fields of Virginia in the in the, in the early 1600s when labor was needed. And and so uh, you know they looked for different types of workers and African slaves worked the best. And at first they weren't slaves; they were indentured servants. And as time goes on, they didn't uh, the English planters didn't want to free them because they would lose money if they did. You know after the seven years of indentured servitude were up and. So laws began to change that benefited the wealthy planters so they could keep the labor. Well, then, as more and more immigrants came from Europe, they wanted to have a separation between the labor that they could keep and the labor that was getting set free. So if you had white skin, you were set free. If you had dark skin, you weren't. And eventually, black became a thing. It became derogatory. It became a, uh, a mark of, of a servitude. This was by the late 1600s. So this wasn't something that was just plopped down in America, set and fixed. The idea that, that you know, that ship that came to Jamestown in 1617 or 1619, that they were slaves and that slavery started in America then is not quite true. It actually developed over time, over several decades until you get to late 1600s. So that was really interesting to me. And then as you have economics and you have law and you have culture changing, where the idea of being black becomes something of a, of a servitude, then you have the church being brought in as well. And they wanted to give all of that divine sanction. The reason why that's really important is because you look at motivations. And the motivation was to promote our way of life, to promote our prosperity. And that became the thing that was the driver. And so it, it dominated economics. It formed our economic system. It dominated politics and our political system. It dominated culture. And culture began to align that way. And then it began to dominate religion as well and the religious expression in America. So those four things were lining up to say, how do we promote and defend our own way of life? So by the time you get to the 1800s, and you have Baptists and Methodists that are in the North and they come South and they're in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And they're primarily abolitionists. They were against slavery when they first came South. And I didn't know that. I mean, even though I'd done my Baptist history and things like that, that particular issue wasn't really talked about much. It took them about 30, 20 or 30 years to actually begin to affirm slavery. And why was that? Because it benefited them to do so. And they began to, to, uh, to affirm that and to adopt that. So whenever you get to the why question, which is what you asked originally, why did this happen? The answer that I found, which led to the Civil War, then after the Civil War, then all the way into the 1960s, why do white Christians side with racism and with segregation and slavery? And the reason for it is because it benefited them to do so. It protected and promoted their own way of life, their own perspective, and it was easier for them to keep people at bay and side with the larger culture. And we've been doing that a lot. The Charleston Nine told a different story. They were completely counter what our culture says. They didn't lash out. They forgave. And they were motivated by Christ. And I don't know if all that makes sense or not, but, but, but that's the answer that I got to, that the no, reason for this. I, no, and, and I think that's excellent uh, to draw out. There, there are two things that come to mind. One is that when, when we take that, you have a, a, a broad description there that will protect um, our, you know, our way of life. And I just want to drill down a minute because really kind of what you begin with when you start started giving that description is 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 it really was an economic force it it really was um, uh, had it not been a lucrative move, I think we could assume that things might have gone differently, but because the economy supported a particular way of life because in your in your article you began talking about 
as the economy in the South grew along these lines and because they had bought into particular ideologies, you know, they named their towns particularly and they, they, they opted for a particular architecture. But, but really what lay behind that in a, in a, in a more specific kind of vein was it was the economics that were at work and then and then the way that the social structures and then even the religious systems came in to participate were actually in service to those economics is that fair yeah i think that that was a driver because i mean this was a brand new country there was no you know, there was no economy. It had to be built from scratch. It had to be built quickly because people couldn't survive if they couldn't make money. And so you see that from Jamestown um, all the way, you know, all the way through. And, and, and so they didn't really, you know, and I'm, I mean, they didn't really have a lot of time to figure this out. Okay, they had uh, tobacco could grow in Virginia, so we have to get the fields uh, cultivated. We need labor for that. How do we get labor over here? They tried uh, bringing Englishmen, that you know that didn't work very well, and the Africans work the best. And so then they began to see the Africans, um, in, you know, as property and uh, you know, and 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 in, a, and in an economic sense, they needed a, a background for that and a philosophy because this was, I mean, there had been slavery, there had been and you know, serfdom and indentured servitude. All of those things had happened, but with the Enlightenment, you know, that was really kicking off in the 1600s and 1700s, there was a real need for things to be rooted in a sense of reason, okay? Why are we doing what we're doing? What's the philosophy behind what we're doing? And a lot of people think that they got this from the Bible, that the Bible was the emphasis— that it was the background for slavery and even for oppression. And that's not true. Where they got this from was from Greek philosophy. And so they brought in uh, Aristotle, uh, who in his philosophy of natural slavery, where he said that it's obvious that Greeks are superior to barbarians. It's obvious that men are superior to women. It's obvious that uh, free are superior to slave, that the master is superior to the slave. I mean, look around, you can see that that's what's going on. And so that was a good philosophy for them to kind of back up everything that they were doing. So they appealed to the Greeks and they appeal to the Romans, and those were the first ones with democracy, and that's what you were talking about before with the architecture, the Greek revival architecture with the columns and naming towns like Corinth and Athens and things like that. They were completely immersed in this Greek perspective that was emanating from the Enlightenment, and then as Christian people, they wanted to wed those things together, so they wanted Athens and Jerusalem to join together, so to speak, and so they kind of baptized the Greek philosophy into a Christian veneer, and that's really what dominated our churches, and the article that I write uh, talking about heresy, which I think you'll get to, uh, Al Mohler, the president of Southern Seminary, he gets into that, that the founding of the Southern Baptist Convention was founded in heresy in relation to racial superiority and white supremacy. But it, it comes, that heresy comes in from Greek philosophy that was really primed for that, even as, the, even as they pursued freedom. And that's what's interesting. It was freedom for me and not for thee, right? right? Freedom for the master, but not for the servant, because there was permanent servitude for those who were beneath. And so learn, become educated become prosperous, uh, you know, uh, grow in power, and that's where freedom comes from. And, and those were a lot of the ideas that were brought in. Yeah, I want to get, I do want to get to uh, Moeller's. One, one thing that, one, one way I wanted to, to get there is the second thing, not, not just was there an economic driving force. And I, I understand that, that uh, what is it, necessity is the mother of invention. And, and so uh, if we've got this economic possibility, then maybe we don't think all the way through kind of these implications. And we've, we cobbled together all the things that then support reason for uh, preferring life this particular way. The, the one thing I wanted, to, I wanted to, to develop because it got us into your um, p- position on the uh, uh, 
controversy, if you will, over the Confederate flag. And that is, is first, you, you've, it's, you've already made it clear that this really wasn't a states' rights issue, that the states' rights issue became a, uh, really was in service to the economic forces at, at work. The second thing, though, is, is it, we, we, got, we have to get to um, how s- signs and signifiers work. And so when you start describing uh, uh, towns with names like Corinth and Athens and you start talking about street names named after um, uh, southern generals and, and, then, and then we talk about the, the flag. And in this current controversy over what to do with that flag, there is this division over, well, it's just a part of our history but but you take um, Russ Moore's position, and frankly, I think you took it long before probably Russ Moore did, even though you were very nice to advocate and say that, you know, Russ has been saying this for some time. But I think out of out of what you've discovered, the what's signified by the symbols uh, is is deeper than the role the symbol played in history. So, in, in other words, if we could merely say that this was uh, the the symbol for uh, a Confederate group who are saying no one's going to tell us what to do because um, we've already established this as our patterns, our habits. You're not going to tell us how we do it, how, what we do, and why we do it, etc. cetera. Um, but, but laboring underneath that are the questions related to just exactly what you're defending and so in that way, the symbol becomes a signifier of something deeper. So rather than just this, you know, um, kind of uh, symbolic object that simply says, well, you know, this was a, a reference to a, a particular historical moment. We give some dates, talk about some key battles and, and then move on. You seem to really be intent to drive at what these things signify, which I think is what Russ Moore does. I think it's what I mean, and I think it's right. But, but I th- I think it bears you helping uh, our listeners kind of put that together. That uh, in the same way you were moved in the 49th and 50th anniversaries of the Freedom Riders, and you were moved at your uh, breakfast table watching the video. There's something about these symbols that stir much deeper than uh, a history. There's there's something signified when a, a black person sees a Confederate flag. They send their students to schools named after Confederate uh, generals and figures. So when they live in towns that that uh, represent this particular way of thinking about superiority. Um, help us a little bit with that. Uh, how, how do we how do we bridge that when, frankly, we aren't part of that cultural piece? We were on the uh, top side of that hierarchy. Help us a little bit with that. You know, I mean, uh, you know, William Faulkner uh, he wrote. Uh, I don't have it memorized, but it's it's a beautiful piece about how for every fourteen year old boy. It's always that afternoon of the third day of Gettysburg, and victory is always 
you know, it hasn't happened yet. The battle hasn't happened yet, or, or, or Pickett's charge hasn't happened yet, rather. There's always the possibility that it might not happen or that it might be victorious and that the South might win. And, you know, he wrote this in the late 1940s when, when the Confederate flag was reemerging as a symbol coming out of World War II and, and uh, Strom Thurmond and the Dixiecrats were, uh, were opposing Harry Truman's desegregation of the military. And so they mount a presidential bid in 1948, and the Confederate flag begins to reemerge then in the early 50s, as the civil rights movement is picking up, the Confederate flag gets brought out of attics and out of trunks and mothballs, and people begin to wave it as a symbol of the resurgent South or as a, as a memory of what the South used to be and what it still could be. And so, you know, for I'm, I remember as a kid growing up in the 80s, and we would play Civil War, and my friends, we would we would always all be on the South side, and the and the the North, the Yankees were just out there somewhere. No one, I mean, nobody wanted to be a Yankee because we were Southerners, and we wanted the South to win, and we would recreate the battles and everything. So there's this emotional attachment uh, for Southerners. And as a kid, I didn't, in my mind, relate it to wanting slavery. I didn't relate it to wanting to have even segregation or racism or anything like that. I just related it to my heritage and my homeland and my family and where I was from. And there was that pride that I think is natural to people around the world. And so, you know, for being on the top side, and I'll just address that first, I do think that there are people who maybe don't think it through. You know, they don't think what... Not only does the symbol mean to you, but what does it mean to others? And as I became more Christian in my thinking, as as Jesus began to 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 influence me more, I realized it doesn't really matter what I think about things as much as it matters how does it affect others. Um, if there's a whole massive population that when they see that symbol, they think you know oppression and slavery and 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 things like that, or they think that. Or they question, why would I use that symbol? Why would I fly it? And it, it becomes very confusing for people. Then I began to think through it a whole lot more, and I began to say, okay, I'm required to love sacrificially, right? I'm, I mean, I'm required to think about my brother and to think about how things affect them. And this is even as a teenager. I mean, I'm, I mean, this is a decision that I made years and years ago that a lot of the Southern Confederate pride type things were really not compatible with Christianity or not compatible with a biblical view of how we see other people and how we love other people. And so I, I put them away, but I was motivated by thinking, how does it affect others? How are other people perceiving this? And, and, and what does this make them feel? And so that is really what got me thinking. And in that, and in, in being able to think about others, then I think you're able to listen to what they say. And then you're uh, you know, able to hear and then even begin to feel uh, some of the things as they express to you what their concerns are. You know? And so that's, you know, I'm not an African-American man in Mississippi or Alabama. I'm, I'm, um, I am who I am, but I can listen to others and I can try to hear and I can try to adapt to that. That makes sense. Oh, absolutely, and and certainly this could be a good place to pause and and say that what you're describing is an empathy, and one thing that tends to actually be missing in our in our uh, the way we describe things in, in our culture and even in our churches is is there is there is um, a lack of empathy because we still have the remnants of. Um, I need my position, my place, and so I'm always. I'm my first move is always me, mm-hmm. and it's it's never um, a move that says, okay, so I have these ideas or I have these feelings. Now, what about in relationship to other human beings, and and then how does that square? You you used a line that that I wanted to pick up on because I this is the. 
you know, on a personal level, this is really the heart of, of some of what I do in pastoring and, and teaching and preaching here at Snow Hill. And that is, I think we don't sometimes think it through. And I think we just quickly embrace whatever um, constructed pieces have been given to us without the why question. And because uh, we have, at least in my lifetime, always been fearful that something is going to replace Christianity or Christianity is going to wane or or it's going to fall off or it's going to be no more or, or whatever, we we don't like to question out of fear that maybe we might contribute to that rather than see how sometimes we ought to question some things to reinvigorate um, and, recon- and, and make connections with our current context. And so while some people don't like the fact that why are we fighting these things or, 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 or revisiting these things, well, part of it is we, we can't look at, we can't um, uh, not, look at our own particular context. And so we are required to think it through. And, um, and, and that brings us actually to Moeller's piece that uh, um, um, if we're going to talk about other visceral responses that you had to kind of the whole complex of this event, what, what we really think about this is, is the way in which um, Moeller came out and, and, flatly said the Southern Baptist Convention was born out of heresy, and he included the institution that he leads, Southern Seminary. Mm-hmm. And, and he really does seem to be saying uh, in what you, what you quoted, and I went back and read uh, the piece, we really didn't think that through. And, and so um, help us a, a little bit make uh, uh, the, some of the things you describe in your piece illustrate illustrate how we didn't think through these things beyond well, simply beyond simply what about my neighbor uh, talk about uh, you know consequences that we've we've faced yeah and i you know i i think that perhaps we weren't thinking it through well in the 1600s in virginia and when i was a kid in the 80s and i was kind of you know appealing to Confederate heritage, I wasn't thinking it through well then because I was a kid, I didn't understand. And in the 1600s, people were trying to survive and just build a country. And they probably thought that this would end pretty quickly. Um, But by the 1800s, by the mid 1800s, we thought it through. (laughs) Um, I don't, you know, Mueller makes one statement that I did take issue with. and and, and, And I did in the article where he says that they didn't have voices that were telling them that they were wrong. And that's, that's not true. Uh, I mean, Southern Baptists, who began the Southern Baptist Convention in 1845, was born out of controversy. They was born out of rejecting the voices telling them that they were wrong. So you had Northern Baptists saying, we're not going to appoint slave owners as missionaries to take your slaves with you to the mission field. And Southern Baptists said, well, that's not okay, and we want to do what we want. And, you know, they tapped into Aristotle's view of freedom, which is we are our own moral agents, and we won't be told what to do by you or anyone else, and so we're going to, to form our own mission-sending uh, organizations. And so... They thought it through, but they thought it through from a perspective of how does this benefit me, and that was their motivation. It was it was very self oriented, and they they use scripture to defend that. Now a lot of people would take issue with that and say no, they were motivated by by this and that. But when but when Mueller says heresy, I think he really gets at it. Heresy is a thinking through. Um, a situation, but it's thinking through it from a totally wrong angle and, a, and an unbiblical angle to the point that they were thinking through how 
how things benefit them. So I, I totally understand what you're saying, and I agree with you. Um, I just wanted to make that point that there was a lot of thought being put into it by 1845 and 1850, oh. but they were coming at it from an angle of how it benefited them. Sure, sure. I, I guess I guess really kind of the way I would nuance that is, is you set the precedent for your own investigations of your own uh, history that is, you know, how you grew up, and then you started asking questions, and then you actually discovered that there are some inconsistencies right. with these particular um, feelings and ideologies when you started looking at the life of Jesus and you were being discipled to Jesus. Right. I, I guess when I when I uh, think about that they didn't think it through was that at that what they thought through was, as you describe it, what they thought through was how can we maintain the status quo? So the, the Christian community actually had mm-hmm. capitulated to culture, and what they were thinking right. through, they were actually thinking through the lens of um, those institutions and ideologies that had supported a particular way of life. What they hadn't thought through were the implications of cobbling together proof texts for right. the curse of Ham, for instance, for defending these uh, notions of it's okay to be a, a Christian and, and own slaves, and that's why we got to tell our our brothers, no, you can't tell us what to do. And I and I guess I'm glad you. I'm glad you drew the distinction because I think you are absolutely correct. There was a lot of thinking going on, but it's what they were thinking through that, that really made the difference. So I, I would probably say the through is the, is really kind of a euphemism for the lens. They weren't thinking right. through the lens that, that you described right. being necessary for you to set aside anything that might have made you a really good Southerner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that was and, and I think that really gets us to the place where, while I, I agreed with your your piece and I'm glad you noted it, I I think we weren't listening to the prophetic voices, and, and I and I'm I'm glad you took some exception with that. But but where I wanted to get to um, was the the way you pulled out, and, and and you agreed with Mueller at this point, and this is where I wanted to have a, a few minutes, and, and that is that. The idea was that, well, they were orthodox on some things, mm-hmm. but, boy, they were heretics over here. Now, the, the normal course of how that works is we actually in Christendom, uh, in the history of Christianity, we had a hard time differentiating between an heretical idea and a heretic, And yet that seems to be what's in play in the way both Moeller and you kind of look at this thing to say, well, they were orthodox about these things. So in other words, they had assented to some uh, doctrinal commitments. But in the practice, well, you know, these heretical ideas, you know, produced this particular way of looking at the world that was, well, it was, wildly inconsistent such that you know this broad broad statement that the southern Baptist convention was birthed in heresy southern seminary was birthed in heresy really actually may be saying more than i'm wondering if you and moeller would actually really want to say because i think what gets pulled out there is is they had some heretical ideas i might want to say they were heretics yeah, and and Mueller does say that um, he he even his his last line uh, of of the article he he questions and I'm 
I'm pulling it up here. Um, he says, uh, I do believe that racial superiority is a heresy. That means that those who hold it unrepentantly and refuse correction by Scripture and the gospel must, as Harold O.J. Brown rightly said, be considered to have abandoned the faith. Um, you know, we can't know for sure who abandoned the faith and who didn't or who, you know, who, you know, that it was so pervasive within them. I mean, I mean some of them we can go by the writings and other things like that. But but what makes it difficult is that they weren't seen as heretics in their time. And so they didn't face the judgment. I mean, they did from other believers in the North, but we, you know, we disregarded them completely. I'm talking about, you know, from amongst their contemporaries. There weren't church trials and tribunals and things like that. And so we're looking at this, you know, from the other side of 150 years. And, and it is difficult. Difficult. It is difficult. You know, you know, does heresy mean that we are no longer Christian? It depends on what the heresy is about. You know, um, is heresy only about the person of Jesus? Is it only about the issues that were considered in the first couple hundred years in the early, in the early church councils? No, I mean, I think heresy can be a lot more than that, especially when you look at how much this affected us. I mean, we still have, and this is where I get into contemporary issues in the middle third of my book, where I talk about the history as an object lesson in the past, and then I get into how did this affect coming out of the civil rights movement in the 60s and 70s and 80s. So you have African Americans and you know schools are being desegregated or being integrated, and white Christians in the South are leaving, selling their houses, moving to other neighborhoods, moving to other parts of town, and the churches are going with them, and they're building new churches, and people are congregating together, and the concern is not for their community. It's not for, uh, you know, uh, those who are in need. It's not even for evangelism in many cases. As I'm, I mean, everybody wants to share the gospel with people, but it wasn't for their their community. They were trying to protect themselves. And so this issue of protecting my way of life, which birthed racism and which birthed uh, slavery and segregation, it kept on going. And it moved into areas of consumerism and individualism. And, and it kept birthing and, and, and it kept metastasizing into other things. And, you know, we're dealing with this today. And it's a major barrier to discipleship and mission. When you have somebody who's come to Christ, they you know, they confess Jesus as Lord, they've been baptized, they're in your church, and you cannot convince them that they should serve in the church or that they should do anything because they're so busy going to the lake or to the, you know, uh, you know, vacation or whatever they want to do consistently. And in their mind, they say, well, I'm right because I'm autonomous and I can do what I want. and I don't need to serve and I don't need to, to sacrifice myself. That's a pretty serious thing. And that it gets tied back to these issues of how do I promote and defend my way of life? And then we use Jesus to do that. And so Jesus becomes a means to an end. And, you know, people like um, uh, Eugene Peterson have written a lot about this, about, about how we use God to benefit our life. And so people say, I want to get back in a church because I want to, I want to benefit my marriage. I want to get back in a church because I want to benefit my kids, you know, that type of thing. Well, that's great. And everybody wants that. But if you're using God to just try to make your life better, then you're not really giving your life to him. You're kind of using him when he's useful. And that gets into, that's what voodoo is. You know I mean? I mean, the implications of this are really huge. Um, and so to say that we're birthed in heresy when it comes to white supremacy, I don't think we go far enough to just locate that white supremacy. I think we have to look at the whole motivation behind it. Why did we, why was that belief so appealing to us? And then how did that underlying issue keep popping up again and again and again? That's the real core issue. That just gets to human sin and selfishness, which everyone would agree to. But I think that we can locate it a little bit better than we have. Uh, I think, excellent point. Excellent point. And, and I, I, I want to be clear. I, I, I don't, it's not that I disagree 
with what you've described in, in terms of how we think about heresy and, and what, what level we ought to consider someone to have abandoned the faith, I just think that it's very hard for us today that when we see these, these uh, uh, miscues or failed discipleship, that, that we don't go all the way back. So there, there had to be some things in what we've described as those orthodox positions that inherently actually help feed the way that that orthodoxy got shaped into a heretical expression. Um, Dallas Willard, um, uh, the late Dallas Willard, would, as I read him, uh, for instance, in the divine conspiracy, po- posited that it, we tend to have a split wherein we can say there are things we believe and then there are things we do. And we've often fashioned that as a very simple description of hypocrisy. Uh, and and the truth of the matter is, is Willard contended that what actually gets lived out is actually a revelation of belief. So that to lay claim to an orthodox connection to tradition or some uh, biblical uh, systematic that gives us some sort of handle or hook to talk about the nature of God and the atonement, etc., that, that by default produces something else, either the individual has um, opted for a different way beliefs function or actually doesn't believe that and is ap- actually operating out of a different mode, and you called it, you know, sin and selfishness, and, and that one may well be. And I guess that's the only thing that I think we, we suffer potential criticism of, of, of making it sound as though, well, you know, these guys were right here, but they, they went off the rails of the faith. So let's go back and we can celebrate their orthodox positions. And I guess I just want to say that we, we leave ourselves wide open to the fact that somewhere along the way, those orthodox positions didn't take root in, to such a degree that the, um, the practice of that faith looked something different than the status quo. And I think that's where, you know, your, your book comes together when heaven and earth collide and you make some uh, yeah, and just, present day applications. Yeah. And, and just one thought on that, um, you know, even I, I agree with you absolutely. And I agree with Dallas Willard in that, but, you know, to kind of critique the enlightenment and the age of reason just a little bit, when, when we locate that in the individual the way that we do, every individual is autonomous and they use reason and they come to their own conclusions and they're, and they're supposed to act out of that. I think we kind of fall into a false perspective as well because is the individual more powerful than the culture that they're in? And we get so shaped by the world we live in um, that even though, you know, 
if that world affirms an orthodox belief of, of the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus, and we adapt that, but then that culture also is advocating or or just accepting or allowing, you know, for certain things that are that are contrary, we tend to draw the bridge, and the culture draws the bridge between belief and practice, and we get caught up in that. And I, you know, and I don't think that we're able to. Now, I mean, there are. I mean, we're all individually responsible. We should all break out of that. We should all be aware. And I get that, and and the Holy Spirit enables us to do that. But at the same time. You know, this is why the church is supposed to be together and why we're supposed to work together and why we're supposed to have this culture of discipleship and, and of sacrifice. Because I don't think we're as strong as we think we are, to quote Rich Mullins, I guess, from years ago. Um, you know, we're not as capable to see this as individuals as we would like to think. You know, the rugged individualism of the man by himself you know, standing with scripture and holding truth, we get shaped far more than we think we do by the world around us. And, and, and that's why in my book, I say, I'm not just casting stones in the past. I'm not just trying to demonize people, even in using the word heresy. I'm not, you know, just trying to, oh, you know, they were wrong and we're right. And, and, and all this, but it's more to be aware if they had this struggle and if they couldn't see these things, then what about us? You know, we're in the same boat and we have the same struggles and problems. I mean, they might look different. They might manifest in different ways, but you know, we need to be a lot more humble about our positions and even our collective positions, you know, you know, where we say, we know that we're correct on this. Um, it has to be rooted in scripture. I'm, I'm a firm believer in that. I'm not saying question everything. I don't think everything's up for grabs by any means, but I do think that we need that. What is helpful for me? And what I learned from this study is that if I'm motivated by, a belief or by a practice and how this benefits me. If that, if my first thought is protecting myself or protecting my way of life, there's a pretty good chance that I'm, um, that there's some error. Cre- in there because Jesus told us that if we want to follow him, we have to take up our cross, lay down our life and follow him. And so the Charleston nine, they taught me and they taught us to, based on what Christ has done for us to forgive and to lay our lives down, even to the point of pain. And so that's the thing that Christ calls us to. And I think that's a good way to kind of work our way out of, uh, out of some of these errors, I guess. Oh, I, I think that's very good. And, and I think that you draw out the ways in which this is an ongoing struggle, an ongoing reality for uh, we Jesus people is a really uh, good call, good reminder, and because we're running up against our time, a good a good place to stop. So, uh, Al, let me say thank you for uh, your time. And uh, those of you listening, let me let me invite you to, to head over and uh, purchase a copy of When Heaven and Earth Collide. You can get it um, in a paperback. You can get it in Kindle. But I think it would be really worthwhile. This is current stuff, folks. These are issues that are ongoing. And uh, unless we want to repeat history as a farce, we certainly, like Alan described it, there's something we have to learn from it. And uh, I think he not only has uh, great thoughts on what we've covered, but there's a lot more going on in uh, his book. So, again, head over, uh, get it, read it. And then uh, after you do, we'll have this up on, uh, well, I'll have it on my blog. I'm going to put it on our our church's website and uh, let's uh, engage some conversation. I'm sure if we had one going, Alan would visit with us on it. and uh, inter- interact along the way. So 
get out there and, and get a copy of Alan's book. Well, Alan, thanks again, man. Appreciate yeah, uh, it. Thank you. And uh, maybe we'll find another occasion to get you on the old Skype and, and do this again. Oh, I would love to. Thanks a lot, Todd. Appreciate right, it. Man. Have a good day. You too. Hey, as always, thanks for listening to Pathological, the podcast or the pastor theologian. Hey, on the website, check out a couple of new sponsors. First of all, LSTN Sound, Listen Sound. Listen, if you're looking for a great pair of headphones or earbuds, uh, how about choosing a for-purpose uh, company? Brand new, three years old. They've helped 20,000 people who have uh, hearing difficulties to hear in a number of countries. Visit the, the link on the website. We'll have it in the show notes as well. And then maybe you are a person interested in supporting uh, small businesses, those who may uh, create their own uh, um, products, uh, handmade products. Then visit Oikos Handmade. Both of these you can find a discount that when you click through and you purchase, use the discount code Pathological. Yes, the title of the podcast, Pathological, to receive a discount. Hey, again, visit our sponsors. Be a great help to me and to them. And uh, we'll look forward to the next podcast. Thanks for listening.